You're listening to Penny Dreadfuls from the Moth Sanctuary. The things we do for love. The things we do to be loved. What fools we are. I cannot fully say if I regret what I have done, for if I knew that my actions were to have any other outcome than the one I crafted for myself, then I would do it again, without hesitation. Once I was a housemaid at an ancient castle, the ancestral home of a great family that sat high upon a hill above a sleepy port town. Every day I would stand on the grounds outside the east wing and stare across the expanse of nature before me. When I close my eyes, I see that view, and each time it makes me smile. The mountains several miles away, green and swelling like waves against the vast blue sky, with the river flowing freely below. There are legends that say this land remembers all it sees, and whatever it sees becomes a part of it. And so whatever the season, I would stand and stare and let it stare back into me, praying for it to remember me. There were other girls who worked at the house, but none could hold a candle to my devotion to our employers and their home. They were simple, plain, and lacking ambition. I came from nothing, and I never took my position for granted. I have never been afraid of working for what I want. I've earned all I have, and all I have, I deserve. At times, my contributions may have gone unnoticed by my masters, but that was all right. One day, they would see just how much they needed me, and I wouldn't be overlooked anymore. It just required patience. It's always the most unexpected things that throw us off course. The sudden wave that washes across the deck and places us in alien waters, or dashes us against the rocks. My wave's name was Peter. I had agreed to meet my brother at the local tavern one evening. You would not find me at this establishment often, due to the type of clientele that were known to frequent it. Sure enough, when I went to meet my brother, there was a small band of sailors that were enjoying themselves rather heartily nearby. I sat quietly with my drink, trying to ignore their behaviour as best I could, but members of their party kept edging closer to where I was sitting. At one point when my brother had gone to the bar to refill his glass, one of these crewmen, a portly, bald-headed man in his fifties, became so animated in his yarn that he nearly fell backwards into me. Had this happened, he surely would have knocked me clean to the floor and crushed me. But before he could topple, he was grabbed by a hand as strong and tight as a ship's rope and hauled back to balance. "'Mind your step,' the owner of the hand admonished. The bald man turned to see what peril he had just been saved from, and was met only by my startled expression. "'Sorry, miss. I meant no harm. Didn't see you there,' the bald man said earnestly. I remained frozen to the spot, unsure of how to respond. "'Go on, sit down, you pillock,' the owner of the hand said, before turning to me. "'Are you all right, miss?' I remained unable to speak, but now it was for a wholly different reason. This new man could not be further from the first in his appearance. He was young, maybe even younger than myself, 
broad-shouldered and handsome. His hair was cropped short and a dark blonde colour, his face open and friendly. Slowly, I brought myself to nod in reply. Please forgive my friends, they're harmless but can sometimes get a little overexcited for their own good. We're actually celebrating. One of our crew members has just had his first little one and Rogers was regaling us with stories of when his children were young. Still, that's no excuse for ruining your evening, is it? Again, I responded wordlessly with a shake of my head. I wasn't used to strange men even noticing me, let alone talking to me. And I certainly wasn't accustomed to those that did being as captivating to look at as he was. What's your name? he asked. I fought my lips to move. A quiet voice answered, Agatha. He smiled. Agatha. I'm Peter. He extended his hand to shake. I took it gently, like a sparrow landing on a rock. His skin was warm. Well, Agatha, I trust you're not here alone. I shook my head again. The quiet voice said, My brother is over at the bar. I pointed to my brother, still waiting to be served, talking with another patron and oblivious to any of the events that had transpired at our table. Excellent, Peter said. At least I can rest safe in the knowledge that you have a chaperone for the rest of the evening, so I shall leave you in peace and try to keep these oafs under control. He smiled again. I smiled in return, but secretly I was disappointed. I didn't want him to go. If he were gone, I was afraid I would become invisible again. It was lovely to meet you, Agatha, he said, and stepped away from my table. My face flushed. I lowered my eyes and quietly smiled into my drink. When he and his shipmates left the tavern a little later, Peter held the door open for them and then looked back at me and gave a little bow. My heart fluttered, a completely new sensation to me, and I gave a small wave in return. My brother didn't notice. It's said that love can occur at first sight. I had never put much thought into it as romance had never been a consideration of mine. But now things were different, and I knew that adage was true. After my meeting with Peter, I started behaving differently. My mood was lighter throughout the day, and my work seemed easier. I began daydreaming freely, in a way that I hadn't allowed myself to do before. I had always enjoyed my own company, but had anyone attempted to speak to me in those days, I would have talked to them about all things under the sun for hours with a smile on my face. Most uncharacteristic of all were my daily walks, where I would stroll down to the harbour under the guise of perusing the day's catch, but secretly hoped to run into my handsome sailor again. Most days I came away with nothing. Others I would actually purchase a fish, but there was no sign of him, until about ten days after our first meeting, when I wished I hadn't made the trip at all. They were preparing their ship for a voyage that would take at least several weeks, Peter was on the pier, and he wasn't alone. Her hands were in his, and he was looking deeply into her tear-streaked eyes. For all I knew, this scene was innocent enough. This may have been his sister, after all. I managed to get close enough to be able to hear their words, blending in with several others on the pier. No one took notice of me. She was saying how she was scared for him to go away, and how she would be heartbroken if anything were to happen to him. He was reassuring her that he was good to the sea, and the sea would be good in return. 
he told her that he would be more careful than he had ever been in his life, for he now had something worthwhile to return home for. Then he kissed her. My heart sank in my chest, stealing my breath with it. I fought to stay upright and to keep the tears welling in my eyes from escaping. Looking up, I realized I knew her. She worked at the castle as well, a chambermaid of all things. She wasn't elevated enough to be of use in any of the other rooms the way I was. Yet here she was, standing with the only man I had ever felt anything for. And somehow, he saw her as being more worthy of his affection than I. Why? He brought her hands up to his lips and kissed them. At the sight of it, I had to turn away, on feet that threatened to fail me at any second. My lungs suddenly felt electric, and I pushed against the groups of sailors and fishermen scattered across the pier. I kept walking as if in a haunted dream until I was back in the safety of my room, where the tears that had been threatening finally came. I sat all night, wondering how everything went so wrong. I thought of that disarming smile that he had shown me and how easily it had come to his face, and I thought of him showing it to her. The thought was perverse, as if she had stolen something from me. She worked in my castle. She probably looked out at my view every day. And now she had taken the only person who had shown me any attention. The thought was intolerable. My eyes dried, and once that happened, the plan came swiftly. I imagined my end goal, and pictured each step required to execute it. But I couldn't start straight away. I had to bide my time and wait for all the elements to be just so. I'd need a week at most. That should be long enough for her worry to eat away at her. More than enough time to prepare myself. Sometimes, when you want something enough, you have to reach out and take it. The next morning, I visited my brother's house. It was still odd to think of it as his, even though our parents died more than a third of my lifetime ago. But as he hadn't changed the decoration since their passing, it was easy to feel like I was stepping into a memory every time I came around. I gave him some vague excuse for my dropping by, and when he was distracted, I walked into his room and pulled my father's old tin box out from under his bed. I knew the instrument I required would be inside. The tool to my future. I opened it, and the scent of pine and my father's pipe smoke came wafting out of it. The object I sought was right there, just as I remembered. I closed the box again and slid it into my basket, discreetly hiding it under a shawl. I then quickly said goodbye to my brother and made my way up the street. I remember passing people on my way and thinking to myself, no one knows the secret I'm carrying. It's right there, beside them, and they have no idea. No one noticed. Just think of what they could have spared themselves if they had. I did as I intended and waited a week before making my move. I waited until the early hours of the morning, then stole through the hallways of the castle. Nerves rose in my stomach as I brought my hand to her door and knocked. She opened it tentatively, and I was up close to my rival for the very first time. Seeing this bleary-eyed, short and unremarkable girl confounded me even more. Surely this should be no competition to me. Can I help you? She said dozily. 
With urgency, I then recounted to her how I had just received word from some men who had come from the town. There had been an accident at sea, and Peter's ship was wrecked. He'd managed to make it back, but was badly injured. They say he's asking for you, I told her. You should come, now. Horrified, she grabbed her coat and shoes and came speeding out into the night with me without even changing from her sleeping clothes. I told her it would be best if we cut through the woods to get to the town more quickly. She followed me without question, and I thought how it was best that I had caught her by surprise while she was sleeping. She was still disoriented from being woken so suddenly, and so had no suspicion of me. She simply followed, blindly. I took her as deep into the thicket of trees as I could. The woods were not large, but it was private enough to do what needed to be done. When I felt that we were deep enough, I stopped, pretending to need a moment to rest. She protested against this, saying that for all we knew he could be dying. She said she needed to see him one last time. For whatever reason, it was these words that kindled the anger in me, and I felt my control begin to crumble. He's not dying, I said in a voice laced with venom. How do you know? she asked. I shook my head. You silly girl. You're not very bright, are you? Honestly, what could he possibly see in you? She stared at me blankly, her confusion just proving my point. I then reached into the inside pocket of my cloak and drew the pistol. Her eyes widened at the sight of it. What are you doing? she cried. Her voice was high-pitched, whiny, simpering, and it made me angrier still to hear it. I pointed the pistol in her face, grabbed her by the shoulder, and pushed her back against a tree. All this time you've been so worried about him out at sea, but what you don't understand is that's where he's in his element. If you truly understood him, you would know that he's smart and strong and cunning, and there's no hardship at sea that he couldn't stare down and conquer. She looked at me stupidly. And if you don't understand him, I continued, then you can't really love him, can you? You love your version of him. The one that is fretted over and worried over, and before you know it, he becomes restricted and tethered, stifled and suffocated, an albatross trapped in a cage. That is not love. I could never cage such a creature. He needs to be free, and I need him. That makes you nothing more than an obstacle, my dear, to the both of us. Through tears, she managed to splutter out the words. What are you talking about? Who even are you? I took a step back, aimed for that face, the one that had seen my view, had looked upon the smile that had been given to me, and had kissed the lips that should be mine to kiss. The image of them on the pier jumped back to me, the thought made pulling the trigger easier. The shot echoed up and out of the woods. Her head snapped back and hit the trunk of the tree violently as the bullet blew right through her skull and sank into the wood. More blood than I had imagined covered the bark. Her body slumped to the floor, the jaw hung slack. What remained of her eyes stared out blindly and her nightdress rode up. More unworthy of his attention than ever. A calm satisfaction rushed over me, as if I had just completed a tedious chore. I had initially planned to find a place to hide the body, but looking at her now, 
I knew that carrying that amount of weight anywhere by myself before sunrise would be nearly impossible. Besides, the shot had been much louder than I anticipated and would definitely have been heard by someone. It wouldn't be long before people would be gathering here. But more than anything, it just felt right to leave her there, like that. I wanted people to see her in this undignified state, as I had always seen her, less than me. I took one last look at her and shook my head. Then I hid the pistol back in my cloak, took up my lamp and left her behind, ready to begin a new chapter, without obstruction. She was found just before dawn that same day. I had crept back to the castle and managed to settle for a couple of hours before dawn. When the other members of staff woke that morning, word had already reached the castle and many of them made straight for the scene. I went with them to avoid any suspicion, but as I walked, I felt eyes upon me, eyes I could not shake. The scene seemed different in the morning light. To my eye, something about it seemed askew. The women started to cry, and most of the men's faces were ashen. I played the part as best I could, but couldn't bring forth any tears. Someone had tried to cover her with a blanket or sheet of some kind, but it was too small, and most of her leg below the knee was exposed. Another person was attempting to clean the tree of the girl's remains, but as they did, we all noticed something. Blood instantly reappeared from the bullet's entry point, just as soon as it had been wiped away, as if the tree itself were bleeding. It flowed like a pierced barrel, dripping down to the floor and seeping around the girl's body. The crowd kept their distance from the slowly forming pool, afraid that they might be infected by it. It was a frightening thing to behold. I became aware of the eyes once again. My hands started to shake. An older man who seemed to have taken charge of the situation stepped over to the tree and placed his fingers to the wound. He drew them back and rubbed them together, seemingly trying to confirm what he was witnessing. He thought for a moment, then ordered for the tree to be cut down. It was a cursed thing now, and couldn't be allowed to stand. Two brothers made short work of felling the pine, and when it lay on the floor, they began to dismantle it piece by piece. But the blood did not stop. Even as they stacked the logs, even more now came seeping up through the newly exposed sapwood, as if it were open skin, and it poured onto the floor, staining the ground. More gasps of fear rose up from the small crowd, from everyone except me. The only sound I could make was a terrified laughter that I could not control. Everyone's eyes turned towards me. The land, it sees me now, I shouted. Look at what I have wrought. I have offended nature so desperately that I have created an unnatural reaction from it. People tried telling me to calm down. Others were murmuring incoherently, but I couldn't pay heed to any of them, even if I had wanted to. I was lost in this terrifying vision. I, who has never done anything to anyone, who none of you even paid a blind bit of notice to, am now suddenly so damnable as to elicit this sort of response from the elements. This land remembers all it sees, and it remembers me. It remembers what I did. My laughter reached a fever pitch and became a scream. The older man clutched me by the shoulders and shook me, trying to break my delirium, but it would not work. 
He asked the others gathered if they knew who I was or what my name is. Only one person came forth. They told him I worked at the castle and said my name was Agnes. That was the only thing that drew my attention away from those horrible bleeding logs. My name is Agatha, I shouted, as if it were suddenly the most important thing in the world. The woman who had stepped forward jumped and took a second to regroup. Then she leaned close to my face and said, I don't care. Maria was my friend, and if you've done what you say you have, then I hope you swing. Despite everything, I remember noting with some small degree of amusement that this was the first time I had learned my love rival's name. The gathered people were very vocal now, each voice addled by shock and disbelief. The older man took the girl to the side, then ordered someone to hold on to me. He asked some of the women to take a man back to the castle so that my room could be searched to see if there was any validity to what I was claiming. He didn't believe that I could do this, even after my own admission. They still believed that I was simply not significant enough to have committed this crime. It didn't matter, though. I'd never imagined that anyone would be rifling through my room, and so the pistol, though hidden, was not hidden well. They would find it. My mania ceased, and a strange sense of paralysis overcame me. I simply sat down by another tree, and stared at the constantly dripping logs and waited. The pool of blood streamed in my direction, and covered the toes of my shoes. I didn't move. The man returned from the castle in less than an hour, with the pistol in his hand. There were some who would have liked to have killed me right there, but they were too frightened by the strange happening with the tree. They thought it a sign I was a witch. Instead, I was bound, paraded back to the town and brought to a cell. My trial was set and was over just as soon as it had begun. I didn't speak a word in defense of myself. In fact, I hadn't said a word since I was accused. I was found guilty of murder and sentenced to hang. Weeks passed as I waited the date of my execution. In that time, I heard stories about that cursed tree. They had tried to sell the wood, but no one would buy. At first, it was suggested that the wood be taken to London, when no one would know the timber's terrible origin. But then someone had a more novel idea of what to do with it. They built a gallows. One created just for me. They named it the Bleeding Maria. The day came, and a guard let me out into the courtyard. Their creation was a monstrous mangle of crimson-stained wood that for some unfathomable reason brought to my mind the image of a wild and dangerous crone. There was a large crowd gathered around it. I stepped outside, and the sound of their jeering was deafening. The guard led me onto the platform, where the executioner fitted the rope around my neck as I faced out toward the crowd. There was one face among them that wasn't screaming. It was a deeply handsome, but sad face that was desperately craning for a glimpse at his lover's killer. Peter. I could tell he didn't recognize me at first, but when he finally did, his expression turned to one of confusion and hurt. His head fell, and he stood as a single, immovable pillar of grief amidst a storm of anger. I couldn't bear to look at him any longer. 
I closed my eyes and was instantly transported away from the rabble, staring out at my beloved view from the castle. No guilty voices, nor heartbroken faces to deal with. Just a perfect, unspoilt view. It made me smile. There was the sound of a lever being pulled. I saw no more. This story was written by Andrew Bate and read by Chloe Gorman, with music also by Andrew Bate. Penny Dreadfuls from the Moth Sanctuary is an audiobook series by Moth Sanctuary Productions. You can subscribe to the series on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and YouTube. Follow Moth Sanctuary Productions on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or for more dark delights, visit mothsanctuaryproductions.com.